All right, good morning and welcome to this gathering of Sojourn Church. I'm just really glad that this is a huge turnout for a Memorial Labor Day weekend. So welcome to all the students and all the Young Life people and um, everybody that's here for the first time. And we're just really glad that you're here and what a beautiful day to worship the Lord. So let's, uh, let's just take a moment to calm our hearts and our minds, prepare them to, uh, to sit under God's word. So let's, let's go ahead and pray right now. Father in heaven, as we just sang, you are good all of the time. You've been good all throughout of history. You are good now. You will be good in eternity. And Father, we thank you that through that blood of Jesus, we are made good with you. Father, we pray that we would see that this, ta- this hour, that you would remove our doubt, that you aren't good. Help us in our unbelief, Lord. Help us to know you better and to trust you with everything. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> I called the sermon the aha moment. And uh, an aha moment is kind of like when, when things come together. It's like this moment of sudden insight or discovery. That, that veil is like lifted from your face or your eyes. And the clues fit together neatly to form a complete picture. And... And it's made more clear. And we've all had aha moments to varying degrees. You know, they can be big or they can be small. When I was five, I had this misunderstanding about Easter. I, I, I knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so in my five-year-old mind, I thought, okay, well, Jesus died on Easter. And so every Easter, our sins are wiped out. And then they accrue for the next year. And then they're wiped out again. And I'm thinking, man, if I die, it needs to be that split second right after Easter. Um, But then I had an aha moment when I came to understand and I realized, no, 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 Jesus died once for all sin. We just celebrate it. Another aha moment, and this was a small one, is when we had our first child, Zoe. Uh, She didn't seem to ever sleep. and She didn't seem to need sleep. And if you're a new parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we went to the doctor and we're like, she's, she's just not sleeping. And the doctor's like, well, is she happy? And we're like, yeah. And she's like, well, she just doesn't need much sleep. And I'm like, that's not really helpful. Uh, And so we bought an espresso maker. And that was more helpful than the doctor. (laughs) But as that that toll of of not sleeping was kind of creeping up on me, uh, something amazing happened. And this happens with most babies. She noticed me. She, She made that eye contact and she starts to smile. And, and as a new dad, oh my gosh, that just melts my heart. I'm like, you can keep me up all the time. And then I came to realize that this child that's robbing us of our sleep, this is changing, changing before our eyes. She's growing, she's maturing, she's developing. And this stage that we're in is not going to last forever. And so I was able to fully take in that toothless smile and enjoy that moment. And that was that big, that aha moment for me. You know, baby books like What to Expect When You're Expecting, told me about that, and people had told me about those things, but I was just so caught up in not sleeping that I just really couldn't focus on that at the time. But then she smiled and everything changed, and now I'm happy to say she's usually the last one to wake up in the mornings. (laughs) Well, we've been in the book of Hebrews for a while now, and for today, we're going to take a little bit of a detour and jump into the book of Luke in a one-off sermon. But I hope you'll see that while we're in a different book, our passage this morning still demonstrates, like the book of Hebrews demonstrates, that Jesus is really the point of it all. 
you know, we're going to consider an aha moment from the book of Luke. You know, Jesus has been crucified and he's just risen from the dead. And there's talk of his body not being in the tomb. But rather than putting the pieces together, rather than saying, oh my gosh, this is what he talked about. His followers are confused and troubled. They're like, where's the body? You know, it's like if they were watching The Sixth Sense, they watched the entire movie, they wouldn't get it that Bruce Willis's character is dead the whole time. It's just completely over their heads. That is until everything, sorry. It's an old, it's an old movie. I figured everybody's seen it. Sorry. If you haven't seen it, go on. <laughs> okay. My apologies. But it is a good movie. <clears throat> well, that's until everything comes together. Until that, that veil is lifted from their eyes and they get to see that whole picture. And they see for the first time how things have happened. They happened for a reason. And it's a complete game changer. I mean, it changes everything they do, everything that they think about, how they look at the Bible, how they look at the world, how they look at the people around them. It changes everything. Because they now see and understand how the death and resurrection of Jesus is everything. And so this morning, we're in Luke 24, 13 through 53. It's a, it's a long narrative. It's a long section, but it's, it all fits together. It's kind of a story. You know, the women have gone to the tomb, and they're confused. And when they, they find that it's empty, the angels appear, and they tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they go back to the others, and they tell them everything. And Peter and John run to the tomb. John beats Peter because he's a faster runner. And there's a, there's a buzz in the air. But nobody seems to fully understand just what happened. And so now it's late in the afternoon. So they've been dealing with this all day long. And all of Jesus' followers are probably talking about not how he's raised from the dead, but where is the body? And it's also the end of Passover. So up to this point, Jerusalem was packed with worshipers, people coming in from all over the countryside to go to the Passover festival. And now they're heading out of Jerusalem. So there's a very real sense of, like, it's anticlimactic. Oh my gosh, everybody's leaving, and we're left with an empty grave. And so as I read this, listen as though you're there. You know, you're on your way about to start on a three-hour walk. The road is dusty. There's lots of people. You are emotionally and physically exhausted. You've spent the last three years with Jesus seeing the impossible. And for three years, your hopes for a deliverance of Israel have just been getting higher and higher and higher. But in the last three days, they've come completely crashing down with that cold, hard reality that the man you loved, the man you followed, and you thought would change everything for better, he's dead and gone. So listen as I read. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company completely amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them there gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and he, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. One of the most ironic things when you read about the life of Jesus in the four gospel books that talk about his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is their their reaction to the empty tomb. You know, throughout his ministry, Jesus has been telling them, I need to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised again. But when things went down, it's like everything he said went in one ear and out the other. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. 
but they couldn't wrap their minds around the notion that Jesus could be raised from the dead. This morning, I want to hone in on that doubt and misunderstanding because we are really no different. It's easy for us, having all of Scripture, to think that surely we wouldn't have doubted in that position, but that isn't so. So as we consider the doubts that the disciples had, I also want us to see how Jesus corrects that doubt and the misunderstanding. And ultimately, through that correction, the life-changing effect that the correction has on the lives of his followers. So imagine what it must have been like for these disciples. You know, they've been following Jesus, as we said, for a few years. They've walked with him all over Israel. They've seen countless miracles. They've learned from him. They've seen him laugh. They've seen him cry. They've been witness to his humanity as he wept. They've seen him raise the dead. And spending all of this time shaped their views and their hopes of just what Jesus was going to do. They thought he was going to redeem Israel. That he was going to throw off the yoke of Roman rule. But they no longer had that view. In verse 21, it says, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Notice the tense there. Had hoped. That hope is gone. It's past tense. A hope that was. Because their world and their hopes are not just broken, they're shattered when Jesus is taken from them and murdered on a cross like a common criminal. And in their minds, they're like, this is not supposed to happen. This is not how it was going to go down. And so how could he possibly be alive? You know, the understanding that he could be living and breathing, brought back from the dead, was just not on the table for them. Now, I think the problem here was that their doubt, their disbelief, was fueled by their misunderstanding. Let me say that again. This doubt is fueled by the misunderstanding. They couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that Jesus physically rose from the dead because they were caught up in the notion that he was supposed to redeem Israel and boot out the Romans. They were thinking small, but God had much bigger plans. And I've no doubt that they believed the scriptures, that they searched the scriptures for the Messiah, but they probably viewed scripture through the understanding that God was going to bring Israel into a new era of political freedom. And so the the verses in Scripture that talk about a suffering servant, of a, of a servant laying down his life to redeem Israel, were probably just over their heads. They only saw what they wanted to see. And so when Jesus died, the possibility, their hope, of this Jewish freedom, it died with Jesus. In verse 17, when Jesus asks them what they are talking about, they stop walking. So they're walking on the road and they stop as if in shock that he could even ask that question. And the text says that they were looking sad. And I can only imagine that their eyes were red from crying and their entire countenance was downcast. And Jesus, as a good shepherd, draws them out. He asks questions and exposes their doubts. And then he begins to correct them and teach them. He doesn't reject them for doubting. Instead, he reminds them of what he had to do. And then later on with the group of disciples, it's almost the same thing. He not only does the same thing to remove their doubts, but he shows them his hands and his feet. He says, touch me and see. And he even eats some broiled fish. This is not rejection. This is assurance. So let's take a pause here and consider, how are we like those disciples? Just like the disciples, our doubt 
can be fueled by our misunderstanding. We don't understand things, so we start to doubt. We call it into question. And we are so short-sighted that we can't see the forest for the trees. So when things happen, even when they're right in our midst, we tend to just shake our heads and say, that, that just can't be. But on a, uh, it's, it's so easy in that moment of, of not understanding, to cry out to God. You know, Lord, I'm so tired. I'm so weary of this life. How can this, how can this hurt and this pain possibly be your plan for my life? Or if you're thinking that, God, so many people are devastated by those floods in Texas. Entire communities are just wiped out and underwater. And their lives are ended and ruined. Lord, how could you let this happen? It doesn't make any sense. You know, your word says that you love us and you have a plan for us, but this does not feel like love. Well, brothers and sisters, if you feel that you're being tossed about on that sea of uncertainty, that storm of doubt, don't look at the waves that are going to throw you over. Look at the solid rock of the gospel. That rock is rooted in the ground and it stands firm. Look to God's word, like in places like Psalm 73, which describes a person awash in doubt and bewilderment over the prosperity of the wicked. It says, When I thought how to understand this, that's the prosperity of the wicked, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And so there's the doubt. You know, how, how do I make sense of this? And then here's the understanding, the correction. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Understanding took away the doubt. Understanding removes the bewilderment. You may even say to yourself, those walking with Jesus doubted. So what hope can I possibly have to, not, to, to fully believe Jesus and not doubt him when I've never seen him? Well, brothers and sisters, take comfort that we have Jesus' words written down for us. And that understanding can remove our doubt. You know, reading the words of Jesus can give us that understanding to remove that doubt. And that's something the disciples never had, a complete Bible. I think sometimes we get confused and tend to equate understanding as complete and total understanding. You know, we're never promised to understand everything. In the words of Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. You don't get full understanding, but you get understanding that you need. And so 10,000 years from now, we will not fully grasp just how awesome God is. And 100,000 years from now, we're not going to fully grasp how beautiful Jesus is. And 100 million years from now, we will still be standing in awe at the power of God's Holy Spirit. But my point is this, that while we will never fully understand the depth and the breadth of his love for us, of his splendor, with every passing moment in eternity, you're going to have better understanding of that love. We will never have the full understanding, but we will have a constantly better understanding. And the better we understand those riches that await us in eternity now, the better we focus on that pure, unmitigated fellowship that we can have with Jesus, that we will see God face to face as he wipes the tears from our eyes, as we grow in our understanding of that hope set before us, 
we will have no doubt that the things we are going through now are for our good and for his glory. And brothers and sisters, no matter if you have doubted or are doubting now, God wants you to be real. He knows your heart better than you do. And we see that when he says to the disciples in 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He doesn't say to to the disciples, You have no place with me, you of little faith. Yes, he he may rebuke them with a question about their disbelief like he did in verse 38. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? But the Bible tells us that the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, God eternally delights in you because you have that righteousness of Christ. But Jesus doesn't just stop at the rebuke. As a good shepherd, he goes on to correct their misunderstandings. He takes the steps necessary to do this, and he does this by opening their minds and their hearts. He doesn't make some theological argument about the propitiation of sins and justification to prove his point. No, he opens up God's word and shows them all of the Old Testament is like that baby book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, but of theology. You know, that, that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, is all about the baby, and the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Note that in both instances, Jesus used Scripture to show them and correct them. In verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And then again in verse 44, when he appears later to the larger group of disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We don't know what passages that Jesus used, but Jesus is everywhere. He is like the Passover lamb whose blood allows death and judgment to pass over us. He is like the lamb in this obscure passage in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, Redeem a newborn donkey with a lamb, otherwise break its neck. We are that unclean donkey, and Jesus is the lamb that keeps our necks from being broken in eternity. He is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus used things like this to show them, hey, I am your entire history. Everything that has happened is to prepare your lives for this moment. That when I came to die for your sins, you would fully understand it because these notions of sacrifice, sin, punishment, holiness, redemption, these are all things that have been ingrained into your culture, your society, your faith. That that's what we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. All of these things are going to point to Jesus and say, there it is. That's what we're talking about. Friends, the Bible is God's word. It's his revelation of himself to us. It lays out the master plan that he should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. In the Bible, Jesus is everywhere. And so I would encourage everyone to dig in to the entirety of the Bible. The Old Testament to me is like the plains of World War II. Yeah, they have their own unique beauty. 
and in place, just as the Old Testament does. Yeah, and the New Testament does paint a clearer picture of Jesus, just as the jets of today are much faster and more efficient than the planes of the past. But all planes, whether World War II or jets, operate on the same principles of flight. And so all the Bible operates on that same principle of sacrifice, redemption, and righteousness. Because it all points to Jesus. It all points to the sacrifice he made to make you a child of God. But we need to understand that eternal life is only found in Jesus. That the scriptures point to him, but they are no substitute for him. And friend, if you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you're here today with a friend and they just brought you along and you want to hang out or something, and you don't know Jesus or you don't know that you know Jesus, search the scriptures. We got Bibles back there. Take one home. If you have a friend who doesn't have a Bible, take one home and give it to that friend. Show them. See how the, the scriptures point to Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. As it says in verse 46, that Christ should suffer and on the third day arise from the dead. We need his suffering and his sacrifice to wipe out our sins because we are all sinners. We are born at enmity with God. We're born enemies. We come out of the womb angry at God. And I'm convinced the first sign of that is when the newborn baby arches their back and makes it difficult for you to hold them. But the death and resurrection of Jesus changes all of that for those who love him. If you repent from your sins, that's turn away from that life of not loving God, and you turn towards God in faith that he raised Jesus from the dead, you can have new life. It's a life that's in Christ. Because when you love Jesus and you understand who he is and what he came to do and what his death accomplished, it will change you forever just as it changed the lives of those disciples. So let's consider that now. We can see that change in the disciples when Jesus opened the scriptures to the two walking to Emmaus and with the rest gathered in Jerusalem. And you notice that the changes happened once they realized that Jesus was not just back from the dead, but once they realized, hey, this was all part of his plan. He had to suffer. He he had to be raised from the dead. And I love, I love what the two on the road say when that veil is lifted from their eyes. Didn't our hearts burn within us? This act of seeing Jesus in Scripture, of understanding who he is, what he came to do, and what that means, and talking about it in fellowship made their hearts burn. It's that aha moment of, oh my word, it's true! If you've ever seen the the big picture story Bible book, it illustrates this perfectly. It's got Jesus showing the disciples everywhere where he is in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and their hearts to give them joy in that aha moment of seeing God's redemptive plan. And so think about that moment when you came to saving faith in Christ. When you understood I can't do that. I can't, I can't get to heaven on my own. I don't have that righteousness, but oh my word, God makes it free in Christ and there's no strings attached and he loves me while I'm a sinner. He loves me and I can go to heaven for eternity. That's an aha moment. Did your heart burn within you when that happened? When we see baptisms, You see them raised from the symbolic grave to new life. 
That's an aha moment because it makes my heart burn to see that new, that declaration of a new life in Christ. And when you hear about others who are bold and eager to share their faith, like Scott McKinney, he sent out an email about sharing his faith with this Muslim guy. I was so encouraged. That brother loves Jesus. He's completely sold out for Jesus and he wants everyone to know. Do you feel that burn in your hearts when you hear about those things? I want that. I need that. I'm, I'm a train wreck without those things. So I ask you, Sojourn, what makes your heart burn within you? Does it make your heart burn within you that God's mercies are new every morning? Or are you going about your day with a veil over your eyes? Because there's too many busy details in life right now that are shielding your heart from the fact that you are a child of God. Do you get excited to meditate on eternity? Our hearts burn within us because we have new hearts. Hearts of flesh, not of stone. Stone doesn't burn. And when your heart is moved, you want to tell others. It's a good news. And we love to share good news. And we talk about what we're passionate about. I don't do a lot of talking about country music and line dancing. Because I'm not passionate about it. But if somebody talks to me about sourdough bread, I'm like, it's awesome. I love sourdough bread. I love making it. I love like watching YouTube videos on how to make sourdough bread. So we talk about what we're passionate about. And above all, if you are moved by Christ, if you're passionate about Christ, he's going to be on your lips. He's going to be on the forefront of your mind. You're going to see a neighbor that you haven't met before, and you're like, I've got to talk to them. I've got to find a way to talk to them about Jesus. Every time you meet somebody on the street or you, you go to the same shop and you talk to the shopkeeper, you're building a relationship with the mindset, they need Jesus. I don't care what their lifestyle is. That's not their fundamental problem. They need Jesus just like I do. And so look at the reaction of the two disciples from the road. They walked seven miles. They ate dinner and it's late. And now the first thing they want to do, they're like, we got to go back to Jerusalem. Seven miles in the dark. Maybe getting robbed on the road. I don't care. We're going back to Jerusalem. And the other disciples that Jesus tells them, repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Friends, consider this. The proclamation of the gospel and its ability to change hearts is the natural result of a heart change within them. And with this also comes worship and joy. The book of Luke ends with the disciples on the other side of that doubt and misunderstanding. They're filled with great joy and they're continually in the temple blessing God. They're in the temple where the Pharisees and the chief priests and the rulers are. These are the bad guys that, they, that had crucified Jesus. And these bold disciples are so overcome by joy that they're in the same vicinity as the enemies of Jesus and they're worshiping God. And it doesn't end there. Their joy compelled them to share that good news. And we see that the two disciples on the road and Christ telling the other disciples to share it. Christ said in verse 46 that repentance and forgiveness of sin, sins should be proclaimed to all nations. So even though they doubted, even though they still 
call, that didn't believe Jesus right away and they had trouble putting the dots together, God still called them on mission. Brothers and sisters, it isn't about how much faith you have. It's about who you put your faith in. God calls us to share in the spreading of his good news. Encountering Jesus and knowing who he is and what he came to do transforms our hearts and our actions. It makes us want to tell others that good news. And we see in verse 47 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Sojourn, do you realize that in heaven we'll be able to to trace the lineage of our faith to this very conversation that Jesus is having? Because all these people were gathered in this room and their lives were changed and they shared the gospel with somebody who shared the gospel with somebody who shared the gospel with somebody over the course of 2,000 years and it brought you here today. And in eternity, even if it takes that long, you'll be able to figure that out and trace your faith to this very conversation that Jesus is having. These followers were faithful to share the gospel with others. And the only qualifier in that commission is where it begins. It doesn't say that only apostles make that proclamation, only missionaries, only church staff. No. It says you got to start in Jerusalem, but hey, brothers and sisters, everybody go. The commission is your commission. You are being commissioned to share the gospel. You don't have to be a theological guru to share the gospel. If you're saved, you know enough because you know that your heart has been changed and you can tell others. Go share it. Trust that the Holy Spirit will help you because he will. And after Christ gave that commission and departed, what the disciples did is something for us to note. Again, he worshiped. They worshiped. And they went to that temple. And worship is what comes out of that. Because they had a, a greater perspective. They, have, they had a spiritual overview effect. I know you're probably thinking, what the heck is a spiritual overview effect? <laughs> An overview effect is this, this, this phenomenon that happens to astronauts and cosmonauts. You can look up on Wikipedia. I'm not, I'm not selling you a line. The overview effect is when they see Earth for the first time from a spaceship, and they see it as this small, fragile, blue sphere just floating in space. They seem to get this this aha moment of, oh my word, this is a fragile existence. And all those places and those people are just living together in this one little tiny blue blob in space, and we need to work together to preserve this. Well, when you come to faith in Christ, you see what really matters in life. You see that this life we live is fragile and precious and above all temporary that the boundaries of race and culture and class become less important and the need to tell everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation about the redeeming, heart-burning, soul-cleansing love of Jesus is obvious and imperative. Let's have this spiritual overview effect and let's worship him. And every Sunday, we are reminded constantly of the gospel. You may hear it 52 weeks of the year for 50 years of your life. It's the same message over and over but that's intentional. And your aha moments may not be as big as when you were just coming into faith. But brothers and sisters, no matter how small those aha moments are, the Holy Spirit is what is behind them. Our church is 
just about to turn five. And the gospel message has been proclaimed in all of our gatherings so that you will be equipped to take it from here and share it with the lost. Our faith should be a viral, contagious faith. And when your hearts are burning within you, know the truth from 1 Corinthians 2.12, that you have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and that this is imparted in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so as we close out here, I want to remind us that every week we are reminded of what Christ has done. And we celebrate it through the Lord's Supper. We remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This communion, this shared act of worship is something that we do together as a church family, not as individuals. We don't take the the juice and the bread home and just have it by ourselves. We're doing this together. And there's nothing magical or mystical about it. The beauty is in what it points to. It's that, that new heart that we have from Jesus, that new covenant that he's written on our hearts. And so when we eat this bread and drink this cup together, we as a church proclaim and remember that his sacrifice was the final sacrifice once and for all, for all sin in all eternity. And it's pointed to by the Old Testament scriptures. If you're a Christian, you can freely rejoice in God, taking joy in the God of your salvation, that he has forgiven your wickedness and will remember it no more. So with this in mind, take a moment to examine yourselves and your hearts See how the encountering Jesus has changed you forever. Don't be ashamed of your unbelief, but take that unbelief to Jesus. Find him in his word. And when you come forward for the bread and juice, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we just ask that you stay in your seat. Because this Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who, that know and love Jesus and put their hope and trust and faith in the sufficiency of his blood to turn away God's wrath. So while we're very glad that you're here, please understand that it's our corporate and individual yes and amen to what Jesus has done for us. Just take that time to ask God to open the eyes of your heart to his love. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, Father, what an incredible relief it is that your love for us, the ability for us to to dwell with you, to look you in the face, to be loved by you, does not depend on our actions, on our faithfulness, on our desires, but is completely dependent upon you, Lord. And you love us even in the midst of our unbelief. 
Lord, in our unbelief, help our unbelief. Give us faith. Give us that transformative faith that makes it contagious and makes us want to share it with everybody. Help us to go forward this week in power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this now, not in our own power or anything that we could possibly do, but in the power of the blood of your Son, Jesus. Amen.